One of the first things Mark Leishman mentioned after he won the Arnold Palmer Invitational this week was about how significant the addition of the Callaway Epic Driver was to his bag. That's back-to-back wins for Callaway with Adam Hadwin and Mark Leishman. There's a trend here. Let's get to it. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Yeah, I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We have joining us for the first time, a longtime writer in the golf game, Jaime Diaz. He is a senior editor at Golf World. Uh, wait, do I have that right? Editor-in-chief uh, editor of Golf World, senior writer at Golf Digest. Jaime, how are you? I'm good, man. Thank you. Yeah, um, really excited to have you on, man. I know I've been I've been reading you for a long time. Um, I, I I understand there's uh, some people listening that may not be as familiar with your background or how you got into golf writing. So, what is your what is your go to explanation for how you got into the game and how you would uh, describe your career to this point? Well, you know, my dad was a, a soccer player. Um, who never really got it out of his system. So even when I was a little kid, I was going to his soccer games as he was playing sort of semi-pro in San Francisco where I grew up. And it just was a really sports-minded household, even though I wasn't particularly athletically gifted. I just played all the sports. And even as a little kid, I just, you know, and, you know, my generation, I'm 63. That's how we did it. You know, in, uh, in, in summer, you played baseball. And then in fall, you played football, a little basketball. And then baseball would come around and, you know, golf kind of started fitting in there because my dad, after he finally kind of aged out of soccer, started playing golf all the time. And I would just go to the golf course with him. And, you know, I was an undersized kid. And I, uh, like a lot of kids, I was sort of captivated by how far the ball went. And it was just how amazing a good golf shot looked. And my dad was decent. He wasn't great, but he was very competitive. And he uh, and he loved, you know, the short game and putting. He was kind of artistic about that. So I would just putt with him forever. Uh, or I would putt on the putting green myself. And so I just kind of fell in love with the game sort of from the green backwards. And then I started hanging out at the golf course, uh, picking up the range, doing, uh, you know, working there actually at this. At, it was called Concord Muni. It's now called Diablo Creek in Concord, California. And, uh, you know, also in San Francisco, when we visited a lot, I mean, I would play at Lincoln and Harding. I know the first time I ever went to a golf course was at Harding. And I think the first time I actually went to the physical golf course was not to play golf, but because it snowed in San Francisco, I think it was 1961, which had been the first time in about 60 years. So I had a lot of fond memories of golf, uh, just as sort of a little a central gathering place for our family. My uncle played. Uh, we used to go. San Francisco is a very golf-minded city, and they used to have something called the Lucky International, later called the San Francisco Open. And we'd go there. I saw you know Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, a lot of uh, a lot of people that I, I ended up you know, idolizing and covering. Uh, we used to go to Silverado. There was a San Francisco City Championship. My uncle would take me there sometimes. So I, and then I started playing high school golf. And all this time, I was sort of gravitating as a reader of sports. I mean, I loved baseball and I loved, uh, I started to be more conscious of golf, of sports writers and, you know, who, who wrote about the game in interesting ways. And, uh, you know, it was entertaining to me. The, the columnist in the, in the Chronicle, Ron Tim Wright and, and Wells Twombly in the San Francisco Examiner, I could tell there was a certain flair. I kind of had a word, um, kind of, I won't say it's a gene, because I, I, I really do struggle writing. But in general, I was I gravitated toward the written word as opposed to mathematics and, and the sciences and stuff. So, you know, as I started to play golf competitively, not all that well, but, you know, played in high school four years and then played in college four years and played a lot of junior golf uh, I guess my highlight was my dad and I went in the Northern California father and son a couple of times, which was a thrill because we weren't neither one of us was great, but we were good on that little golf course, which was a nine hole course called Golden Gate Park. And, you know, we could chip and putt and we were good in match play because I think we were infuriating <laughs> as the kind of guys who got it up and down from everywhere. <laughs> but in any event, I just kept, you know, following the game. I, I when I went to University of San Francisco, uh, I sort of I played on the golf team, but I was already starting to kind of get out of my golf obsession because real real life was encroaching and then i went to work at the oakland tribune as a copy boy and kind of stopped playing golf because you know economics and time and kind of what millennials are going through now finding mm-hmm. time 
to, pl to play golf. Uh, but I kept kind of reading about it and it was in my, it was just in me to, to, to stay with golf in some way. And I, you know, I would really follow the, the players of the moment. I mean, certainly Nicholas, but I love Trevino. I love Gary player. Johnny Miller was a San Francisco guy and he was magical when he was on. I mean, he, he played a, a level that actually even Nicholas would say, you know, that that's a little cut above everybody when he's really on. So Miller had kind of a mystique around San Francisco and, you know, I just got very lucky um, in terms of journalism that I that I was, you know, I, I really like was a terrible typist and I couldn't get a job at the Oakland Tribune just working in the sports department, uh, which is all I wanted to do. Um, and I couldn't pass the personnel uh, typing test at that time. You hmm. had to type 45 words a minute with fewer than six mistakes. I doubt I could pass it now with fewer <laughs> than six mistakes. I'm just a terrible typist. But in any event, um, I got a job at the Sacramento Bee. That's where I finally got started. And I was just covering City Hall and, uh, you know, planning commissions and the courthouse. And I, and I loved it. I mean, I, I loved journalism. But in my mind, I, I was always thinking to myself, I, I hope I, I hope I end up being a sports writer. And, you know, I spent seven very good years at the, at the Sacramento Bee. And then I just kind of sent my resume around a little bit. And uh, it wasn't that great, but I just had good timing or luck, mostly, to go to the East Coast, and Time, Inc. at that time was recruiting, and, you know, I just was the right fit uh, for the kind of guys they wanted to hire, or people they wanted to hire, you know, young, low salary, but with clearly an interest, a, a, a real passion for, for journalism, and so uh, I got a job at Sports Illustrated. As a, as a, I wasn't a senior writer, I was a staff writer, and that was the whole turning point in my, you know, my life as far as focusing and channeling into sports and especially eventually golf and i, I don't want to bore you with my whole <laughs> my whole resume here but that was really the foundation and how it, i got started being a golf writer well I, i'm not sure if i love or hate the fact that you say that you struggle writing part of me is as as someone i don't i don't enjoy writing very much but part of me says well all right if if one of if a guy that's been doing this for this long still thinks that he struggles writing that gives a little hope for me but also, it's like maybe this is kind of a fool's errand because if, if you say you struggle writing for as much as you've done it, then what what hope is there out there for the rest of us? Well, of course. I mean, no. Are you kidding? I mean, some guys really have a knack. Uh, my wife is she's a natural writer. You know, she she doesn't. And and honestly, I I just envy her. I mean, uh, I've just happened to have the fortune of of being channeled into an area that had opportunity and that I have great knowledge and interest in. And, you know, has provided me jobs. But, I mean, I've known so many guys, uh, so many uh, men and women with so much more aptitude and, and, and natural talent than I have. Uh, and you, you can just tell sometimes in the press room when somebody's finished faster than everybody else. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like the brain in, you know, in the science class who's, who, who finishes the exam and, and, and aces it. Uh, you know, Dan Jenkins, I mean, I remember seeing him, who I idolized, one, one of the first books that I read was, and, and golf books was the 18 best hole, best golf holes in America, which was a Sports Illustrated book that they had condensed some of his articles, a series that he'd done. But Jenkins has that incredible, you know, uh, style and 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 uh, personality in his writing and, and incredible humor. That that you know, he I know he he works it. I mean, he's not, you know, it's not. He he thinks extremely quickly and ex and extremely concisely, and he's pithy and. I mean, even at 88, he still tweets funny tweets. It's amazing. So, but, uh, you know, those kind of guys have the gift. And I, I think all I have really is tremendous interest in golf. And, and I've never been bored with it. And I like to think kind of about the causes and effect in sports. And I try to apply that to, to golf. But as far as, you know, putting the words together, I mean, in the end, I guess they come out cogently. But, the, you know, making the sausage is ugly. So uh, that's where it's hard. But I honestly, I, I hear that. I think, you know, the, the better you get, in a way, the harder it gets because your standard, your personal standard gets higher and uh, you end up knowing it's kind of infinite, kind of like golf. You're never going to perfect it. And you keep but you keep trying to get a little better. And, you know, the increments get smaller and, and harder as you get older. I think I've, I forget where I've heard the joke before, but I've definitely heard that uh, it's like, oh, so you want to be a writer? Congratulations, you have unfinished homework now for the rest of your life. <laughs> do you ever? Do you ever? I, I struggle with this. I have an idea in my head. I can think of the words in my head. I am. I am going to nail this topic. This is going to be a thousand words and on the website in twenty minutes. 
and then I go to write it, and I'm 200 words in, and I can't even like function functionally put a sentence together, and my ideas squat. Do you ever do you ever balance that all, issue all the time? Yeah, there's almost an in, there's almost an inverse relationship between thinking it's going to be easy and how hard it ends up being. Yep. Uh, for some reason, if I have if I go in exploring an idea and you know kind of uh, you know shoot little uh, thoughts on my computer and and try to connect the dots, I do better than if I have what I think is a ready-made theme because it doesn't hold up usually. And then I haven't, because I haven't given it enough dimension like I have with the exploratory idea, it doesn't come together as fast. It, you know, so I find writing just kind of discovering what you think. You think you know what you think, but when you start writing it, there's an extra rigor and an extra standard of, you know, uh, explanation that is hard to attain. And, you know, it's a good process because it does kind of, you know, separate the stuff that doesn't hold up uh but getting there is it can be painful uh it's it there's a lot of luck it, it's a, it's not unlike i know you know i've got this narrow life where i you know i write and i play golf or i don't play golf but i think about golf and i relate a lot of things to golf but if you play you know some days you go out and you think you got it and you and you have a really good you know session on the range and you go out on the course and whiff your first drive and the whole round is a disaster and other times you go out with no expectations and it just clicks so you know, golf and writing kind of have that same mystery. At least they have for me. I I want to get into a bit about uh, some of the changes that are going on at Golf World. Can you? Uh, I I think I kind of understand some of them, but it, it sounds like you know you guys are moving. You know, you went from uh, from being to a fully digital platform and now going to more of a live news streaming um, uh, sort of a vertical within Golf Digest. Uh, what what I guess uh, kind of started this change or kind of influenced the change, and uh, what, do you have any more specifics on how that's going to work? Well, it's it's always been the goal since we've had to convert to digital from the print magazine. I mean, I think I think what we're trying to do is kind of go back to the future in terms of bringing some of the values that people loved in the print magazine for a long time to digital. What we had was a weekly uh, Monday product, and it was mostly a technological. Uh, uh, limitation that didn't allow us to, to go to become a vertical um, and I don't understand a lot of you know how websites are put together but there is a lot of engineering behind it you know just nuts and bolts stuff that costs money and time and and people resources and everything and you know I work at Condé Nast which is a, a great magazine company and we have like 14 magazines I think and you know there there are some magazines that take precedent uh, you know certainly Vogue and Vanity Fair the bigger magazines and we had to kind of wait our turn at Golf World, which is one of the smaller ones, obviously, um, so that we got some of the things that the New Yorker had done and Vanity Fair had done with the Hive on their websites uh, trickled down to our uh, to our magazine. And so this is the fruit. The fruit of that is now we can be a daily sort of living and breathing website that updates constantly and, you know, basically doesn't have. Uh, formatted stories so because when we were doing our Monday product those stories were usually you know it was 10 things and they were rarely over 300 words usually between 250 and 300 words uh, and I think they were a nice you know kind of encapsulation of the weekend what happened in golf and I think that was our niche but it's a limited niche and so now we can expand into something that can have longer form can have breaking news can have whatever you know sort of the the uh the story merits in terms of form and we just have a lot fewer uh, uh boundaries now and i i think you're going to see some of our guys some of our people uh who are you know true dyed in the wool golf guys be able to you know kind of expand on not just the news they can gather but their own ideas and, and really have intelligent takes and original takes and i think that's been the strength of golf world over the years how much has your role changed in somewhat recent years? I know that you, what is it, I mean, how much of your job is writing? How much of your job is editing? Do you like editing? Do you like the transition that you've gone into being an editor? I mean, it, can you give me some kind of background into, into what that transition's like? Well, sure, it's interesting. I mean, I, I what I've found over the years, the editors that I've had the most uh, kind of fulfilling experiences with have been themselves good writers. And at the same time, uh, there are people who are lifelong editors who don't necessarily consider themselves good writers, but then when you read an email from them, you know, critiquing your story, you realize how, how cogent they are as writers also. So I would say that having edited now, and I don't edit, I, I would say, you know, I, I write more than I edit. Uh, 
but I certainly do edit uh, some, and it's helped me as a writer because, you know, I guess emotionally almost, it's easier, and this sounds so selfish, to make decisions about somebody else's piece than it is about your own. And they, they, they say, you know, taking out some of your own little hard-earned phrases that, that don't belong anymore, it's like you have to kill your babies. That's <laughs> what some what some writers uh, express it as. And, and it, you know, it's not quite that painful, but the point being... Uh, it, there's, you have more invested in your own stuff and it blinds you to some things that shouldn't stay in. And you can you don't have that same thing with other writers. But so I start applying that same process to my own writing. And I, I found myself getting, you know, cleaner and more to the point and, and uh, more succinct. So editing's helped me. Now, we have three guy, three people in the office, Ryan Harrington, who's uh, really kind of runs golf world on a day to day basis in terms of you know the real nuts and bolts. He's very web savvy. He makes great judgments. He 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 gets the he gets uh, things that I might have the first read on, but then he fits them in. So you know my role is still to to write more than it is to edit. And then you know as we have meetings to have direction about what golf rules should be and story ideas, those kind of things. I think I'm stronger in that area than I am. Well, I'm not strong at all in terms of the uh, kind of the technical uh, uh, mastery of the website. Uh, I, I, I'm still a little, you know, digitally, digitally challenged. Uh, but uh, as you could see when we try to get on Skype there for a second. <laughs> well, they, you, you gave in and rejoined Twitter. I, I wanted to, they made you do it, didn't they? Well, you know, I, yeah, I feel like it's a responsibility. I mean, I, I'm scared to do it. I mean, I have to admit, I, I, I admire people who are good on Twitter, and I find myself almost um, – like everything I have to say, you know, I used to, like I used to really bleed over my leads. I feel like uh, I bleed over these tweets when really what's so nice about Twitter is the spontaneity of it, like conversation. And I just haven't quite gotten there, but I'm, I'm getting close. And uh, but it does take energy. I mean, it takes thought and I'm just not a quick thinker. So I always feel like, man, I got too many things to do right now to, to think about a, a good tweet. And I think when I relax, I will. But listen, I realize it's the world. I, I, I'm not you know, I'm not like against Twitter. I, I can see the value. I mean, you know, the fact that I mean, Donald Trump. I mean, historically, I think Twitter may have probably uh, seen its, you know, greatest. I don't know. I would say popularity or importance, at least, in the fact that the president has chosen to, you know, communicate with the world through Twitter. I mean, that 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 speaks a lot for Twitter, uh, for better or worse. So <laughs> uh, I, I feel like uh, I've got to join up and 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 be part of a, a conversation which I learn a lot from. I mean, here's the value of it is that I, I read other people's tweets and certainly uh, the athletes now are feeling like that's a safe place to be open and honest where maybe they wouldn't be as open and honest with a reporter or in a press conference. So Twitter has, you know, a real kind of a new dimension to what, uh, what our gathering of news is. A quick break from Jaime Diaz to talk to you guys a bit about something I floated on Twitter this weekend. Uh, it's about our partnership with Callaway and a promotion that we have coming up soon. I don't have the details yet. As badly as I want to tell you the details yet, we're still ironing out a few things. All I can say is uh, a friend of the program, Sarah Endicott, tweeted at me and asked, is it dinner with Phil? Is that what the giveaway is? And my only response to that was to say that I promise you it's better. I'm super excited because I also get to partake in this giveaway. And uh, all I can say is I'm 0% afraid of overhyping this thing. Uh, more details are going to come. And I promise you guys there's a great reason why we partnered with Callaway and these types of giveaways are that exact reason. So stay tuned for more information. Okay, I want to talk a bit about uh, Bay Hill this week and kind of what's going on in the world of golf as well. I, I think I've kind of turned my eyes towards Augusta as well, so I want to ask you a few questions about that. But uh, as someone that, as you mentioned earlier, you know, grew up watching Arnold Palmer, uh, I, I'm 30, so I, I think uh, a lot of people that, um, you know, I've grown up reading, following in golf have done such an amazing job of making every young person understand the impact of Arnie. And I don't think I've fully, fully understood it until the last couple of years or so. Uh, I don't know how much of the event you were able to catch this week. What was your big takeaway on the way uh, the, the networks, the media, and the, the, the event was run in, Ar in honor of Arnie? Well, I mean, you know, it's easy to be pejorative and say it was a little bit overkill. Uh, and I would, you know, generally sort of feel like, okay, I've heard it, but there, there's a message 
that Arnold Palmer had that resonates across generations, and it's important that it's not forgotten because as golf's gotten so lucrative, it's also gotten decadent. And it's really easy for the athletes to get isolated and entitled and just stop communicating and feel like they deserve all this stardom and all this money. And I'm not saying they don't have an incredible skill that everybody admires, but it's still just golf. And I think what Arnold Palmer did was humanize it to the point where you got to be a person too, and you got to relate to the people that are watching you. And it, you know, I've, I really feel like this generation of players, you know, from Rory and Jordan Spieth and Ricky and, you know, these guys, they seem to have either through osmosis or maybe almost, you know, like it was too long forgotten a little bit in the Tiger era. And I, and I don't mean to come down hard on Tiger. I, I just think Tiger was sort of a throwback to Hogan. And these guys are sort of, a, you know, just pure excellence. And all I owe you is my greatest golf. And that's my gift. And I respect that. But these guys seem to have a sense of yeah, I'm going to play my greatest golf, but I want to have a good life, and I want to relate to people, and I want to promote the game uh, and be open about why it's a wonderful game. Uh, and that maybe sounds a little, you know, maybe a little over-caffeinated, but I, I really do sense that when I talk. And, I mean, it's, it's to their advantage, these young guys, uh, commercially. I mean, it, look at Ricky Fowler's image. I mean, he's so well-liked. But part of that is because he gives of himself. And I think Arnold Palmer did that. And that's the lesson that shouldn't go away. So... You know, it can't always almost can't be said enough. Certainly, you know, it's going to fade away to some extent, not totally. But this was the first anniversary or at least the first Bay Hill without him. And I thought it was good that they, you know, just sort of, you know, hammered it home, so to speak. And and, you know, everybody I mean, I I had a an encounter with Arnold Palmer when I was seven years old, you know, and and I played golf with him a couple of times or once, excuse me. Um, and I you know, interviewed him several times. And it was always a personal, you know, transaction. It was always uh, a feeling that this guy's looking at me, he's recognizing me. And, you know, there's a moment there where this this icon is, is humanizing uh, himself in a way that, you know, you'll end up following this man forever because he gave you something. A small thing that he's, but he gave, that he gave literally to hundreds of thousands of people. So I don't know. I, I think Arnold is bigger than golf. You know, he represents something. Uh, I mean, he's not the greatest player, one of the greatest, but, but he is the king in that regard. If, if, if that means the man who carried golf. And I think more than anybody, he did. I'm glad that you you used the word overkill first before I did, just so I, I sure the bad sure guy. I get it yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I my um, I, that wasn't my entire takeaway on it. It was I, and I tried to keep the perspective of um, I've I've not like I said earlier I've not gone through my golfing life following every step of Arnie's move and maybe thirty forty years from now. Uh, when Rory's retiring or whatnot, maybe I will feel totally different about that event happening than somebody who is, you know, 30 years old when that happens. So uh, I, I think it's 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 so well done by the people that have gone through it, gone, you know, like you have gone through that entire ride with him and become so familiar with him and understand the impact he's truly had. So in that regard, I didn't have a, a I mean, it's kind of it's it's silly as a golf fan to say you have any kind of problem for any way that you honor a legend like that. So I, I wasn't too uh, I didn't think it was too bad of overkill to use that word. I thought it was overall did, did a very good job of delivering the message. But you touched on it a bit just about how much he's done and how much some of the young guys uh, appreciate it and notice it. Do you have an issue specifically with some of the bigger name players skipping the event? You know, I don't. And, um, I, you know, to me, the game has changed to the point of the importance of the majors. Even great. I mean, Jack Nicholas really, I won't say he invented the majors, but he sort of invented the importance of the majors. Um, and now it's, I think it's almost become outsized. And I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more of a, of a backlash toward bringing some more uh, kind of uh, equitable uh, standard to the other tournaments. Uh, but if, if you're a great player, you're number one, you're Dustin Johnson, you're Jason Day, you're Rory McIlroy, you know history is going to judge you on the majors. Right. And so the goal is to be ready for the majors. And the schedule has gotten very crowded. And it takes energy to play. And it, it takes mental energy to peak. And peaking in golf 
first of all, is a problematic thing anyway. I don't even know if it's possible. Very few have ever consistently done it. Uh, but the effort seems worth it uh, because when it comes together, it really does pay off. So Bay Hill, you know, the sort of the sequence and the rhythm of the season, it was it, it was starting to look like where it's positioned in the in the uh, on the calendar, and especially being followed by a, a WGC uh, event, uh, it was the one that was vulnerable. Now, if Arnold had been alive, probably a couple more guys would have come, um, but not necessarily. And and I and I don't think that's disrespectful necessarily. I, I do think even Arnold Palmer would say, "Look, your first responsibility is to yourself and to your golf game, and it's okay. I get it." Uh, and, I, and I know we had that conversation with people. Um, on the other hand, you know, the game does notice these things. And if you look like you're a selfish person or a selfish player t- in, in an extreme way, that can be a backlash too. But I, I actually don't blame players when they're looking out for their game. And, you know, sometimes it, me- it means just getting away from everything. So if, you know, if Dustin Johnson's jet skiing is – and you and you show an image of that, and not that they did, but you know that would look. Look at everybody's here honoring Arnold Palmer, and this guy's out jet skiing, and that looks bad to uh, you know in a facile sort of way. But in fact, he's just trying to recharge so that when he comes back, he plays his best golf. And I don't begrudge those guys that right. Uh, I think obviously it's got to be managed in a person in a for their own sake in a PR in a in a good public relations way. But uh, in general, I give them the benefit of the doubt. I might be a little soft on that. But I didn't have a problem. And, I, you know, Bay Hill is not the greatest golf course. Hmm. Uh, they, they made it hard this week. It's not the player's favorite. I, I don't mean to knock Bay Hill. But a lot of times, guys want to play because they love a golf course. And Bay Hill doesn't engender much love. Arnold Palmer engendered love, and, and that's why they came. But if you're looking at the Florida swing and going, which golf course they like the best, I would say very few would say Bay Hill. Uh, that's an excellent point there. I think uh, the, the most criticism I saw was kind of flung in Phil's direction, which I thought was – probably the most unfounded considering uh, I thought Phil, uh, you know, he, he, he did a lot. He's always shown great appreciation towards Arnie. He, he flew out to the funeral directly after the Ryder yes, Cup. Yes, I was there. Yes. He yes. did uh, honor Arnie. So I, that was, uh, that was kind of the one that I was the, the least. Well, and the of. irony there is that at Phil, the most impressionable person in Phil's whole career was Arnold Palmer. I mean, what, what Phil does with his autographs, that is direct model of Arnold Palmer that he saw at Oakmont, uh, in 94. Yep. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think I think Phil's got some, uh, you know, some chips to play with when it comes to Arnold Palmer. <laughs> you wrote a piece this week that was, I thought, very carefully critiquing Rory's up and down uh, <laughs> Sunday round, and I, I it was I it was very well done. I'm usually very quick to jump on people for criticizing Rory. I think uh, I, my my question for you, based on that, was: Have you received a lot of blowback from readers or whatnot, or guys like me who think the media can sometimes be too hard on Rory? Well, sure, not on this particular piece right. yet. I might. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you wonder, you know, did anybody read it? Because it goes out into the ether and, on, on digital. But no, uh, uh, it comes back in certain ways. And, you know, actually the guy I would be most interested in the reaction, not that it would come, but uh, is Rory. I, you know, I, I would hope he didn't think it was disrespectful because I have, no. you know, a great regard for, for, as I tried to point out in the piece, for his abilities. I think if there's anything unfair about it is the it's that when we when we do perceive super talent we hold it to a higher standard and all i would say about rory is commensurate to his talent uh he is a loose player uh i mean jack nicholas had incredible talent and never wasted shots i mean obviously uh, but but rory leaves some out there too often for somebody of his ability in my opinion now that doesn't mean that he doesn't care it just means that i don't think he's tightened up the little things in the game and maybe he never will maybe that'll be his style and 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 his particular, you know, uh, uh, I guess Achilles heel that, you know, he won't make a lot of putts or he'll miss the uh, the, the more than odd short putt. It, 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 but I always feel like those kind of things with the right focus and diligence. I mean, Tiger, I always go back to Tiger so often because, I, you know, I saw his development. And I mean, he just he would be determined to make a weakness a strength. And not that he would every time, but he would always improve that weakness. He just wouldn't tolerate a weakness. And I sort of feel that Rory sort of feels like golf's kind of capricious. And, you know, I have this amazing ability and I love playing and I love hitting that driver. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. And, okay, you know, and maybe that's the way his mind 
allows him to play with joy. But I think it's more frustrating when he clearly outplayed everybody on the weekend, obviously. He got off to a bad start and just didn't capitalize. I mean, he was playing – he was averaging 331 the last day. I mean, he was he was playing a very short golf course. And, not you know, he made seven birdies. But the four bogeys he made were all kind of soft ones. And that's where, you know, you felt like, man, he was the best player, but he did not win. Yeah, I think what what you said again, I thought I thought was pretty spot on. I think Rory would agree with what you wrote. I think I I have a problem in general when the media tends to take a kind of a hyperbolic approach towards picking on the guys that were close to winning that uh, that did not come through at the end. Right? They put they put a little extra scrutiny on uh, the things that happen in the final round as if that's indicative of something. I think what you said about Rory hitting some loose shots, I think that's pretty spot on. I mean, he did the the. Uh, I think it was four or five iron that he hit on the the last part, not the last part three on the back, second to last part three. Yeah, 14, he just yeah. missed on mm-hmm. a spot that he knew he couldn't miss at, and that's just it's a mistake he knew he couldn't make. I think, uh, yeah, yeah, he did make a few of those down the stretch, but it, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but I almost think he's better off not having won this event right before the Masters. Is that like a crazy, lazy thing to say? Not at all, no. I mean, sometimes, you know, you want the hunger, you want the anger, you want the determination that comes from a tough loss or a, or feeling like you gave one away that can be fuel and you know i i you know i'm guessing but i think he he put a nice spin on it uh with you know in his in his interviews afterwards but i i'm pretty sure he walked away angry from that tournament yeah uh and that's fine that's good uh but you know to your earlier point i you know i, I agree with you about people you know sort of uh microscopically uh, uh taking apart a particular tournament or a particular finish and blaming the guy for choking or for not having it in the clutch, all those things that are easy to do, especially if you happen to want that guy to win. Sometimes as a, as a writer, there are certain people that you, you sort of feel like, man, that guy should be better. And, and you, you're almost, you know, projecting your own failings on the guy. So you have to watch out for that sometimes. But I think the main thing is I look for patterns uh, or I try to, you know, and I think golf's a long story and, when I do see a pattern, which I saw with Sergio for a long time, and I think he's just starting to come out of it, you know, then I feel empowered to, to go ahead and criticize. But in general, I, you know, I try to keep cognizant of how hard the game is and how there's only one winner. I mean, you know, right. golf is the game of losing. So it's just so easy to, to go, oh, that guy blew it. You know, when there's seven guys who blew it, actually, if you're look, looking at, uh, you know, not, not, beating the one guy who did win everybody left some shots out there i mean golf's just a game of mistakes it's, the, it's who makes the fewest and there, i don't know it, there's very few very very few pure uh, clean rounds uh it, but i do end up admiring the players who make the fewest mistakes I, I i always look at spieth uh he'll he'll have the odd you know kind of blow up just when he he might get a little you know over over uh over exuberant or, or angry and, and, and lose it. But in general, he keeps a really tight uh, control on, on, on wasted strokes. Uh, I think it's his greatest strength. And, you know, it makes up for what he lacks in firepower. And he, and he beats guys who have, you know, more physical game because he makes fewer mistakes. And so I admire that a lot. I think it's the hardest thing in golf. And it's what made Nicholas so great because he had the physical game to overwhelm, but he didn't make any mental mistakes either. And Tiger, I think, followed that that pattern but it's really rare last thing on bay hill uh briefly do you it seemed like the again like i said the event was a, a great dedication to arnie and his legacy what do you think about the future of the event i know a lot of people compare it to the byron nelson uh, and kind of how that that event used to draw a much stronger field when when byron was around uh do you foresee any problems in the future with their ability to pull in top players well you know it's again you know it's a crowded schedule. The Florida swing um, is one in which not very many people play all of them. used to be that way uh, when guys were playing 25 to 30 events, and, and that's changed. Uh, I would say that the WGC leaving Doral has hurt the Florida swing, and, and, and going back from Mexico, if, if it stays in Mexico, will be always the tournament after that will always be a tough one. Uh, I think players will sort of feel like this is time for a breather. So someone will be positioning on the schedule. Uh, you know, there's upgrades you can make to courses. I, I mean, Big Hill played really tough. In a way, that, that was almost close to major championship conditions uh, in terms of being firm and fast with some significant rough. 
So that can make it, that can raise it in terms of importance. It's like, how much game have you got? Let's see what you can do at Bay Hill. So it, it, it becomes a matter of how you position your tournament. Uh, right now, uh, I'd say it's, you know, it's it's in the Valspar region as opposed to the Players Championship region, or or or, or you know, or what the rally used to be, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, it, is it a must play? I think probably uh, the Honda has passed it slightly. Uh, these things fluctuate, you know, and 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 you brought up uh, uh, the Byron. I thought it was always hindered by Las Colinas. Right. And now they're going to finally move Las Colinas. Now that's going to become a pre- premier event when they go to Trinity Forest, because that golf course is going to have something special about it, you know, like a, abandoned dunes or a, it's sort of a new, linksy, exciting new style of minimalist golf architecture, and that's going to bring excitement. So, uh, you know, Bay Hill's going to just have to upgrade a little bit. Not, they'll find a way, but I, I think they'll always use. I think Arnold is one of the few icons that can endure even beyond as as great as Byron Nelson was and how much he was admired by the players. He didn't have that public power that Arnold Palmer does. So I think Bay Hill is going to be okay. It's just going to be – it's tough. It's competitive out there to keep getting players. Yeah, they're going to need a little help with the scheduling, folks, I think. I think it was pretty yeah. obvious when the new schedule came out last year that, that Bay Hill was going to get the worst of it. But um, shifting on to Augusta, I think we're uh, two two weeks away from Masters Week now. Uh, my pick is, is, is Jordan Spieth to win. I think I'm probably going to pick him every year for the next like 20 based on the fact that he's gone second, first, second in his first three masters as someone that's seen a lot of masters. Do you feel like that is kind of glanced over and not given enough attention? How much crazy success he's had so early in his career at Augusta? I do think, I do think it's been glossed over a little and I think it's based on that trauma on the 12th hole. Right. Right. It just kind of erased everybody's memory. I think he had led or been tied like seven straight rounds for the lead at Augusta. I mean, it's amazing. I, I You know, the, my history of the Masters, I always go, you know, it's like I can remember 30 years ago the sequence of tournaments better than I can the last 10. Uh, but I, I always go back to, you know, Arnold winning 58, 60, 62, 64. You know, then Jack winning in 63 and 65 and 66. And Gary Player winning in 61. There was that no, they were the big three, and there was a sense, well, they're the best players because Augusta brings out the best and the best players. And I'm not sure that's always true. There have been a lot of false, um, I think, indicators about Augusta always being a power player's course. It certainly helps. I mean, it helps anywhere because there is room to driver, hit driver, and then you're hitting shorter approaches, and you can hold those really firm greens with a, you know, obviously with a nine iron wedge more than you can a seven or six iron. But it's still a game of precision and touch at augusta more than anything and you, if you make up mistakes with short game like like jordan spieth can like sebi ballesteros used to sebi was pretty long but i mean he would just not make bogeys because he just had such incredible touch and usually the guys who are long but a little ham-handed make a ton of bogeys because they just can't handle you know the chipping or even the long putting so i would just say it, it has been glossed over that that Jordan Spieth hasn't been given enough credit for what he does. And also that his style of play, he actually does the things that are most important at Augusta better than anybody else, which are, you know, saving par, not, you know, not making bogeys, keeping your round going without necessarily a lot of pyrotechnics and, 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 and then uh, making six and seven footers consistently, which is really hard on those greens. They're, they're, they're tricky. You have so many 30-footers that run out to five or six feet, and it wears you down to the point where, you know, you start missing them. And he just has that great stroke and great will and great confidence on those putts, and, it, and, and he can do it on Sunday. So I'm not saying, you know, I would love to be Bubba uh, at, you know, at Augusta and hitting that, that huge left-handed cut, hmm. you know, around the corner on 13, and he's won. But in general, the guys like VJ and Bubba, who are great ball strikers and not great putters, don't tend to win very often at Augusta. It's almost always a great putter or somebody who had a great putting week. And I think Jordan's the best, the best uh, bet for that. I've kind of thought for a long time that I just kind of never thought that Dustin Johnson could win a Masters. He just, it just never felt like a good match to me. 
Um, I think we kind of view his game differently now that he's risen the number one player in the world, has won a major, and, uh, and is playing at a level that he's never played at before. He finished tied for sixth in 2015, tied for fourth in 2016, to almost not to my memory at all. I don't, I have very few DJ memories around Augusta. Is that a guy you think? It sounds maybe a, maybe kind of a silly question to say is the number one player in the world a guy we should be thinking about for Augusta? But has anything changed in the way you evaluate the way his game matches up with a course like the like Augusta? Yes, I mean I I think DJ was a guy we talked about. You know. Uh, uh, Rory leaving strokes out. Nobody left more strokes on the course than DJ. Uh, and he's learned the hard way with a lot of determination. I give him a lot of credit uh, to clean it up, basically, and, 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 to, and, to not, and to improve his chipping. Certainly, a lot of attention has been given to his wedge play. He, has, he gets a lot of wedges in, for approach shots, and he's gotten really good from being really bad from like 120 yards to 60 yards and, and even to 150 because uh, he knows his distance is better. He's he's worked on it. I mean, he's he's a very gifted guy who, you know, while he would say, hey, I worked hard on my game and I got to this level, relative to the other guys at that level, he did not work as hard. And I think now he's found hard work and a balance that keeps him, you know, enthusiastic without getting burned out. And now I think he's learned, I can do this if I just get a little better at a couple of areas. And the game becomes so much easier if you keep saving pars. Um, and it's not easy to save pars at Augusta, but if you work on those skills, like Jordan Spieth, I mean, Jordan's kind of a clarion call. That's how you do it. Do not make bogey uh, by, you know, when you do miss a green with, with a tricky chip. Uh, you know, get your, get your technique right so you can, you can chip off those really tight lies without fearing a chunk or, or sculling it. I mean, it takes a lot of work, but, you know, that's what's... Phil does. I mean, Phil's. I remember once talking to Phil. He goes, "Hey, just talk to me now." I was on like the chipping area. Uh, Phil, can I ask you something? Yeah, just come on over now. And he was just chipping. And I asked him maybe eight, eight. Uh, I don't know, two questions. He probably answered for eight minutes, which mm -hmm. was great. But the whole time, I, first I looked him in the eye, and then I just started looking down at his contact as he was chipping, and it was flawless. I mean, you know, the, barely a blade of grass moved. You could hear the click perfectly. And that's what the great, you know, short game guys, I, I, I had in the old days, one of the nice things about covering golf in the 80s, there wasn't quite as much restriction around the players. Uh, and, and, you know, if you weren't a total pest, they'd let you hang around a little bit. And, you know, you, I'd be sitting there with Seve or and just watching him chip. And, you know, you do start appreciating the precision and, and the, the beautiful contact. And that's just the gift, you know, and. You can you can get better at that, and, and Dustin did not have it uh, for years, and now he's getting really close to it. And it, to me, it could make the difference at Augusta. That's a long answer, mm. but uh, you kind of look for the artists, the guys who just, you know, just have the uh, the skill. It's like a musician hitting the right note, having perfect pitch. When they hit that wedge shot, it's right in the right in the correct part of the club, without being too steep and the ball comes out cleanly and it and it has the same spin and bites on the same bounce every time that's what you're looking for jordan's got it dustin's getting there rory has it sometimes to me it's a big separator augusta no that's a that's a great point i think i i always go back to um when I, I watch a lot more golf on tv than i see in person and some shots that I go and see in person that you can't make out on TV or can't appreciate on TV really just kind of remind you of of what is the difference maker at this level. And I go back to uh, the 2013 President's Cup for a totally random shot that uh, Charles Schwartzel hit. And I, I wouldn't say Schwartzel's necessarily known for his short game or any, any particular type of skill other than being a really consistent ball striker, but... He, there, it's the fifth hole at Muirfield Village, and the pin's in this back right little or back left if you're looking from the fairway, little isolated corner of the green that's almost inaccessible. And he's in the fairway about he's got about a 40 yard shot from the fairway, and he's got to carry it onto a piece of green that's about you know it feels about 15 feet wide total, and he's got maybe six feet of green to work with. And he hits this pitch shot that just takes like, lands on the fringe, takes two stops, and just takes two bounces and just absolutely stops on a dime. And my jaw yeah. just dry. It wasn't like the, the most miraculous shot ever, but I was just like, that's a shot that the average player can absolutely not ever relate to. And it's those kind of shots that uh, I think are the ones that really, really separate, uh, separate PGA Tour players from guys like you and me. But 
I, I wanted to ask you a few Tiger questions. I try not to do too much Tiger sure. talk, but you're a guy that has, I think, a very uh, unique perspective on him, especially considering you obviously co-authored The Big Miss uh, with Hank Haney. Uh, but are you with me that uh, I, I still think there's no hope that he plays at Augusta? Do you have any, any insight or estimates on that? I have no insight. Uh, I, I tend to always give him the benefit of the doubt when it comes to his potential abilities. And I would agree with everybody who says, man, it's looking pretty dark. Uh, and uh, however, I just always feel like it doesn't take much um, for, for golf, a golfer to some, a great golfer, especially just turn on a dime. I go back to 2010 when Tiger came out of uh, the scandal hmm. and, you know, was in a, a rehab uh, facility and didn't play any golf uh, for two or three months, didn't play any tournaments, started practicing about three weeks before Augusta, you know, Hank observed him, went out, to, he was hitting it terrible, uh, and he went to Augusta and finished fourth. Uh, now, he wasn't injured at the time. He was mentally, you know, uh, injured, uh, wounded. But and this is a different time, and this is a different injury, but I just always feel like what I saw at the Bahamas, again, he did, you know, he finished second to last in the field, and he made six doubles, but there was a freedom to his swing, and, and even his gait looked very athletic and, and, and useful. And I don't know what happened between then and Tory, but something happened. Right. Uh, however, if it, if it switched that quickly, maybe it can, maybe it can find something. It can, it can switch back again. I, I mean, backs are capricious. Uh, I've always been a little skeptical about the back being the full problem. I, I feel like he still has you know, mental issues when it comes to putting his game on display when he's not the, the Tiger Woods of old. And I, I think there's a lot of pressure on him to live up to his image, and, and he gets a lot of scrutiny and a lot of criticism when he doesn't play well, and I think that can be traumatic. I might be overestimating that, but I really don't know how much he really loves playing when he's not playing well. Uh, and, and if he doesn't feel like he has it, maybe he would rather not show up, and the back gives him cover for that. Uh, again, that's all speculative, but I just, I just still feel like if he had – somehow uh just just a physical moment like he had at the bahamas in the next two weeks he could go and play and could he win probably not but i don't know i i still feel like he's got a lot of game and if if he puts like he like he can like he did at the bahamas he's 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 a guy with a puncher's chance even at augusta now that may sound like just pure romance i don't know i i mean i'm not I'm not trying to be unrealistic about Tiger, but I just think sometimes people make too much of reps and they try to equate golf to like the physical conditioning it takes to play pro football or pro basketball. You know, you're not in game shape. You can't play. I don't think that's true for golfers, uh, great golfers. I mean, I think they, they can find it pretty fast and maybe they're a little tired after, you know, walking five hours. But that the main challenge in golf is not physical. You know, I think too much has been made about getting guys in the gym. Sure, it helps. You know, I'm sure it's put on three or four miles an hour of club head speed on most guys, but that's not the thing that separates them. What separates them is what we were talking about earlier. Can they can they put the club on the ball so they hit solid shots and and hit the shots that they see in their heads and and just have the feel in their hands to make the putts? And those things happen to great golfers. I mean, Nicholas was not anywhere close to anything great at the '86 Masters, and it happened. So I just when it got, when a guy's iconic and great. I, I feel like it's still possible to pull off something impossible. And and you wrote about this recently as well, talking about, you know, what if Tiger walked away from the game? And I walked away from you, you floated a lot of different options and thoughts out there. And I walked away kind of, I think, with more questions than I did answers. And I think that was almost kind of the an unintended, maybe your, the intent of your of the piece. It was it, it was trying to find out what makes this guy tick and pointing out that I'm not sure that anybody really understands that at this point. I I've, you know, it's been well documented and you've written about how much tiger craves privacy yet at the, at the current moment, we started to see a, a kind of a different side of him. You know, he comes and does a Charlie Rose interview. He does a Mac daddy fo Santa photo on Twitter. Um, you know, people speculate this is pressure from sponsors to kind of be out there so he can promote his, his new brand. 
I mean, what what does Tiger want? I, I, of all the things that you wrote about, the thing that stuck to me the most was Michael Jordan saying, I think he wants to retire, but he doesn't want to go out exactly on this note. So it, it, if I wanted to speculate to say Tiger's waiting for one last hurrah moment, one last decent moment, and then it's uh, my back is out, I'm done. Do you, Is that a realistic way we can see the next three, four years playing out? Sure. If, if, if in fact, playing is an ordeal. And he's looking for one good moment where he can say goodbye with, you know, a sense of completion and and satisfaction that, you know, I, I'm going to go out in, in, in with a great impression, a last great impression. I, I can understand that. And, and that may be the case. I would think if he if he had a great moment now and he felt good, he'd keep playing because I think he loves I think he loves to play. I just don't think he loves to play badly and he doesn't love to play hurt. Um, my feeling you know, that article was totally uh, without an answer. Uh, the one thing I always thought, I was kind of, my default with Tiger is the one thing he really loves is golf. And and I've noticed over the years, whenever he's gotten involved in conversations that have to do with golf, and he feels, you know, uh, and I think this is the case, like when he's in the in the locker room at the President's Cup or the uh, as assistant captain at the Ryder Cup, that's where he engages guys and they talk golf and he knows golf like nobody else almost. And I think when he's comfortable, he can expound on it. And I think he's kind of got a natural teacher's sensibility and I, I could see him becoming a great mentor, you know, now uh, in, as for golfers, because I think the one, you know, Tiger has a lot of, you know, kind of gives the Heisman to a lot of people uh, who all, you know, in his mind wants something from him. And maybe it's true. I mean, starting from the media and, but corporate people, everybody who who wants to be near Tiger Woods, the one group that he feels a brotherhood with, and it doesn't matter if the guy is you know a journeyman who's lost his card seven times, are the players. He always has high respect for the players. He's a great pairing because he relates to them as equals. Uh, I mean, I saw that when he was a young guy, first came out on a tour. I mean, playing with you know uh, John McGinnis and uh, Guy Boros, and you know guys who are really fringe guys and they had a great time and he related to him and he loved talking golf with them and learning from them. So I may be overstating this, but my sense is that's his comfort zone. That's his, that's his group. And if he could stay in contact with that in retirement, so to speak, I think that would be satisfying for him. Now, the other thing I would say is, you know, how does he go out? I mean, if he goes out as a, as a, with the perception that, you know, he was a warrior, and I guess I said this in the piece. He was a warrior like every athlete, like Kobe Bryant, who just whose body just gave out in this real noble way. Then I think he can hold his head high, and he would probably be comfortable being a public figure. But if he goes out in the public mind as the as the incredible athlete who self-destructed uh, through his own um, mistakes and kind of shamed himself, I think that would make him more likely to be reclusive. And understandably, I mean, I think Tiger's a sensitive person. He cares what people think. I mean, he puts up that huge armor, but behind it, he gets hurt, you know, by all the criticism. And I just don't think he wants to expose himself to that if that's what it's going to be like. Uh, so I hope for his sake that, you know, he does go out in a way that everybody appreciates who he was, uh, understands he's human and that, you know, he should be able to hold his head high. Uh, but as far as going out, you know, I still think like, if this back thing clears up, okay, I think he still plays for a while. Now, I, I can tell the odds are it ain't going to clear up, and it, it, it may be over very, very soon. But, you know, again, backs being sort of unpredictable, if he's got a shot at being healthy in the future, I, I still think he'll want to stay a golfer. I know, and I'm, as I mentioned, you, you were co-author of The Big Miss, obviously with Hank Haney, and Hank, Hank received a lot of uh, criticism and blowback for kind of writing well, some people took as kind of a, a tell-all book. Uh, did you receive any of that as well? And was there was there a moral issue with that at all? Did that go into your consideration before you made the decision to co-author the book? And are you treated differently by Tiger and his people after writing it? Yeah, well, the, the 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 last part is was the crucial part for me. I, I knew I had a, had had a good relationship with Tiger. It would, uh, and I'll always be grateful for that. And I have a lot of respect for Tiger, and I thank him for all that. Um, it had started to erode, not really through any personal dynamics, but just because of his position in the game and and uh, the the company I worked for 
having a relationship with him that ended and it created, you know, a schism uh, between us so that I wasn't even really having any access. And so my dilemma was, okay, I know if I do this, knowing Tiger pretty well, that's it forever. You know, he's not going to talk to me again. And, you know, that was a hard thing to give up, Uh, not just in a professional way, but I I didn't want to look like just a a guy who sold him out and, and, and was a traitor. And I'm sure that there's people in Tiger's camp and Tiger himself perhaps feels that way about me. And, you know, I care. It it bothers me uh, if that's true. But I think where I am at peace about it is, look, I'm a journalist. I'm a golf writer. I'm interested in, you know, in particular, the greatest players. And our job is to bring out what is true as much as possible, at at least seek the truth. And I think in Tiger's case, because he he put out so little uh, intentionally about himself and who he is. And, and, and this happened to him, unfortunately. This scandal happened to him. And it, it's one of the most amazing, you know, turnarounds, uh, you know, reversals of fortune in the history of sports and even the history of culture. And I just felt like, you know, this is what I do. I, I'm going to help Hank with this book because I think this is going to be an enlightening book about the greatest player we all, we all saw in our era and maybe of all time. And it's, there's going to be a trade-off. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to have to give up something. And I just, it was a close call, but I felt like it was worth giving it up Um, because I'm proud of that book. I'm proud of helping Hank with that book. And I think that book was not a tell all really. It was, it was really a golf book. Um, and you know, I think that was the line of demarcation for all the information we use. How did these, what events affected his golf? And I guess you could say every event affects golf, a golfer, a pro golfer, but, uh, really, I don't think we got into his real private life other than the things that clearly derailed his golf, which was that, you know, the scandal and the awful events of 2009 and early 2010. So, all that stuff being said, uh, you know, I I feel like the book is a contribution to, to the golf literature, and I'm proud to be part of it. And, uh, you know, I wish the world, you know, it was all, uh, you could have everything at once, but I, I had to sacrifice something for that book. Yeah, yeah and I, I didn't mean to personally classify myself as a tell-all book, but I know that's kind of how a lot of people no, it's, treated it's, I, it's Hank. No, it's often... It, it, it's often, you know, categorized as that, and I get it. Sure. Yeah, it, it, you know, and, and, uh, that, and what my perspective I wanted for you was that it's it's Hank's stories, right? It's Hank's access that right. kind of is the yeah. story. You you helped him write the word. You write the words. So, to me, I would think, and I, I'm not Tiger Woods, so I can't operate in that in that uh, mindset. But I wouldn't have. I can see where he could be. They would be bitter about your involvement with it, but it wasn't you that spilled the secrets. And I don't think the secrets within it were too juicy necessarily or, or too damaging. But um, it, it, I know that that Hank battled that and that that uh, that dilemma. And that's I was just curious how much how much kind of uh, shrapnel was 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 deflected your well, way. As yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I've been I've been uh, I feel like I I, I worried about my peers and what they would feel. And I, I, I felt like they felt it was fair. Right. And, and they've been res- respectful and that meant a lot. So, you know, I, I move on, uh, someday perhaps, you know, uh, uh, I'll have a conversation, uh, with, with people from Tiger's camp, but from, from uh, at, at present, you know, I, I just sort of, uh, take it as a given that I'm, I'm kind of persona non grata and I, and I move from there. I still write about Tiger a lot. And, uh, I don't think it's affected um, my perspective of him as a player or or even as a person. I mean, I, 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 I feel like a lot of what's happened to Tiger is kind of tragic and uh, I have a lot of, I, I say, sympathy for him. Uh, but certainly, uh, I think he's just a fascinating figure. And, you know, if we're going to cover golf, we have to write about him. Yeah, it's something I, I'm struggling to deal with, you know, as as I get further and further into this game as well, is being critical of people and, and you know, weighing in what the backlash is going to be to that, right? I mean, it's, uh, it, especially for for a guy like your perspective, it's done it for so long, it's it's hard to think about, you know, you know, really pissing the guy off or telling the truth. <laughs> that's, the, that's the hard part is it's the truth. 
yet you can get yourself in trouble for for telling it. Well, yeah, I mean, the truth's subjective, so you know, one person's truth is not another person's yeah. truth. But I think, you know, access is important. It's gotten harder, and so yes, access is easier when a player doesn't feel threat. But I think the other part is, do the players respect you for being somebody who you know takes a stand uh, for what they uh, what they think in their writing it doesn't mean you have to be you know on a soapbox every time you write but if you point something out can you substantiate it like what i wrote about rory i'm not i could been i could have been i could be wrong about that uh but i try to substantiate my criticism of rory um rory's game uh with evidence and and a perspective and you know again it's it's not i don't pretend to to, to say that's the truth it, it, it's just what i think i could substantiate and if you do that enough and you're not considered nuts uh, you know your, your your reasoning is 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 accepted as as uh, as something that's you know taken seriously and well thought out generally i think i've been i can go up to players and they know i'm not cheap shotting them i'm i'm trying to do something where i'm getting at something that i that I can talk about the game in an intelligent way. That's really what I'm, and, and, and to some extent, they like that conversation themselves. Sometimes when it's turned on them, it gets touchy. But usually over time, one of the nice things, like I'll, I'll go out in the Champions Tour, and a lot of those guys are, you know, closer to my, you know, my age as contemporaries. And, and now the battles are kind of over. I mean, they're certainly competing out there, but it's different. And you start realizing, you know, they were reading me or, and, and basically evaluating me as a as a golf writer all along without my even knowing it. Right. And sometimes they disagree sometimes they disagreed and sometimes they thought I was terrible. But in general, I think I can go out there and hold my head high and feel like, you know, I was doing an honest job and they kind of shared in the same discussion and I was part of it. And so I can now pick up that discussion with them not not as an equal, but as certainly somebody who is uh um, you know part of the scene so to speak without having been just just a, just someone who was frivolous about it they 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 take what we do seriously because in the end they're remembered through I'm talking about the players they're, re, they're remembered to the journalists right and and it's important how they're recorded i mean in their own lives it, it ends up being important so I, I i try to remember that i mean maybe i'm talking too much here but i just sort of feel like you know, everybody talks about, well, who do you who are you trying to please? Well, certainly I'm trying to please myself with a story before I hit the send button. But what I really and and, and this this kind of could be counter to what the Columbia Journalism Review or someone, you know, would say is I'm really most concerned about what the, the subject of my story thinks of it. As biased as they may be and as much as they might, you know, be too uh, blinded by their own self-interest in the end, usually that view ends up being the one that I take most seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the emotion of everything falls away, not that we're writing about all these intense things, but it's still personal when you write about somebody. And if, if they feel like, you know, I, you didn't quite get it right, and then later on they go, you know what, that, that did make sense. Uh, that, that feels good and gives you confidence to keep going ahead and, and following your own, uh, your own ideas and, and, and instincts. All right, we'll get you out of here on this one, Hi, man. And I apologize to the listeners that send in questions as well. I'm not going to get to a lot of them. I try to keep these around oh, an I'm hour. Sorry. No, don't apologize. Yeah. This has been fantastic stuff. So, um, but I, I uh, and, and another Tron, another no laying up guy with me had this question and wanted me to ask you. Uh, I spoke with Matt every last week, and he kind of he noted to me how he feels. He's 33 how he felt like a lot of the young guys that come out on tour now are mostly one-sport guys or a bit trackman obsessed. Uh, is that something you've kind of noted? Have you seen a major shift in the type of personalities that the PGA Tour generates? Well, it, yeah, I don't know if it's – I guess they are narrower. I think everybody in sports is narrower now uh, simply because it's funny. You know, I was alluding to earlier, you know, as a kid, we all – you know, a bunch of us – regardless of, of skill level would all play seasonal sports and you know the best you always heard about three-letter men and four-letter men even in high school and now it's from what i gather i, I don't have kids but uh you know kids specialize very young you know i mean a soccer kid might never play anything but soccer from the age of 10 on um and you know jack nicholas is one who feels like that's been to the detriment of uh 
of golfers. First of all, they don't really learn how to compete to the same extent that maybe a more intense physical sport would teach you to do. Uh, and secondly, you, maybe you don't develop some of the coordination and, and athletic ability that you would if you played other sports. Uh, you know, Jordan, Jordan Speed did play some other sports. I, I think it helps him. I, I, I do sense a, a special level of competition when he plays, uh, competitiveness, I should say. So to your point uh, or Sean's point about, you know, them being narrower, I think they get really good at hitting the golf ball. And, you know, they really specialize at being efficient biomechanically and getting great numbers on track, man. And that's that's really important when you're out hitting golf shots on the course. But is it the most important thing? I don't think so. I think the most important thing is how do you, and this kind of intangible thing, how do you play the game? Um, because everything changes once the game starts. Uh, I mean, never you never, you know, you're sitting on the range and you're hitting shot after shot. You can get in a wonderful groove and get you know perfect numbers on track man but when you walk 290 yards to your tee from your tee shot to your next approach that's a new approach that you haven't seen before and you only get to hit it once and then how do you deal with the disappointment when you don't hit it all and you scramble when you haven't you know replicated what you were doing on track man you know i think there gets to be a little automaton mentality among some of the young guys and I think if you look through history, the greatest players just really knew how to play and improvise and find their game on the fly sometimes during an 18-hole mat, uh, round and, you know, survive when they didn't feel it. it. It is a game of feel more than it is a game of uh, robotic repetition. And so I think it's wonderful. You don't see very many bad swings. You don't see many bad impact positions on tour. You see guys who are maxing out efficiently. But again, Taking it to the course is another challenge, and I think the greatest guys do that sometimes with imperfect swings with, that aren't the best track man swings, but they're doing the most important thing well. Yep. Very good, very good. Jaime, thank you so much for an hour of your time, man. This was, uh, this was excellent. I'd love to do this again sometime, and uh, best of luck with the transition and the, golf, the new golf world uh, vertical, and uh, I hope you enjoy the Masters as much as I will. It was a pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much, and congratulations on your site. Uh, I hear a lot of uh, word of mouth about you know no laying up, so well done. For better or for worse, I'm sure. So, okay. Thank you, Jaime. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! 